reserved for only Noah's flood. So where you see that word, you're dealing with Noah's flood. So when you're in Psalm 29 and verse 10, it says, God sat enthroned over the flood, Mabul. So he's dealing with Noah's flood, God sat enthroned over the flood. You've got Psalm 104, which we went through. <coughs> you have the book of Ezekiel, Ezekiel chapter 14. These are the words. Uh, four times, though these three men, Noah, Daniel and Job, stood before me, my heart could not be for this people. They would save only themselves by their righteousness. So God takes us back to Noah, apart from the other two, and he uses him as a figure of lesson, of a righteous man, and what he did, and the effects of what he did. So you got that. You turn across to Isaiah, it's Isaiah 54, and it says, <coughs> This is as the waters of Noah to me, as I have sworn that they will never cover the earth again. So have I sworn that I will be angry with you no more, nor rebuke you. Imagine that word from God to a nation. Something's going to happen if he's going to be like that. Never again will I rebuke you. God must do something immense to be able to make a statement to a nation. This is as, because it's in the middle of a context, I won't go into it, but he says, this is as the waters of Noah to me. It says, Psalm Isaiah 54, verse 9 and 10. It says, <coughs> I will never be angry with you nor rebuke you again. So we, we, then there are other places, but you step from the Old Testament and you realise Noah's flood was prominent in the mind of God. When you step to the New Testament, was Noah a real man? Well, if Noah wasn't a real man, Jesus wasn't. Because the lineage of Jesus is given to us and Noah is in the lineage of Jesus. So as much as Jesus is a real man on this earth, in his, in his ancestry lies Noah. And by the way, all you have to do is take your Bible and go start from Genesis and this man begat this man, this man begat this man, this man begat this man and you'll be able to say there was 1,656 years from the day God created Adam to the day the flood came. You can say that. It's all there. You can measure it out. You can measure out the ages of these people. They're given to us. So from the time of Adam to the time of Christ, there can only be about 4,000 years. So if Adam was done on the sixth day of creation and creation was a complete creation, the earth is only 6,000 years old. And some people have great difficulty with that. That is the biblical history of our world. So what have I done? Wrecked the whole of geology? By the way, geology is based on two men, Lyle and Hutton. And one of those men stated, I am out to remove Moses' authority out of our world. That was the object of slow processes, geological processes. And it was Darwin who took that and taught his slow processes of evolutionary development of living things. They're built together like that. What I do when I'm teaching is take Darwin's statements out of his book and show them they do not fit today in the world we live in. The questions he had, he's got four distinct questions in his book, Origin of Species. I take those questions out and I show the evidence we know today. What he said in questioning his, his own theory applies today 
and the answers we have today say, your theory doesn't work. That's the scientific factual basis we have today. The problem is most people do not know science, not as it is real. They have been brainwashed into accepting. This is how I put it. If you say something often enough, loud enough and long enough, people will believe it. Crush any other interpretation and they have to believe it. And that is the world we live in, isn't it? That's what's happened. What I'm going to do now is address, or I'll take you through. Peter, the Apostle Peter, in 1 Peter chapter 3, he uses Noah's flood as a figure or picture of water baptism. He gets to 2 Peter chapter 2 and he says, he did not spare the old world but saved Noah, a preacher of righteousness. And he deals with examples of judgment, whether you're dealing with Noah's flood, you're dealing with the angels, or whether you're dealing with Sodom and Gomorrah. He, he puts example by example to show the nature of God and his judgments. He puts them there. When you read that, this is a statement I think you will find is applicable. If I don't understand Noah's flood, I will not understand the cross. You say, what do you mean? 2 Peter chapter 2 and verse 5 says this, God did not spare that old world. What's he mean? There was nothing with the breath of life living outside the ark after the flood was finished. Everything, everything that had the breath of life in it perished under the whole heaven. It was complete, it was absolute, it was universal in its judgment. There was nothing outside the ark that survived, that had the breath of life in it, necessary for life. So when you come to Romans 8, verse 32, God spared not his own son. That means the judgment that fell on Christ is equated to the flood. If God judged in such a way the flood, he never spared, so that means everything he wiped out. What did he do with your sin on the cross? If he spared not his own son, meaning the words used, about the sun and what happened at that cross are equated with the flood and what happened at the flood. And there was nothing left except those in the ark. The whole world was judged and nothing left. What happened at the cross? He judged the world and you died when Christ died. If one died for all, I'm quoting Paul to Corinthians 5, if one died for all, then were all dead. So have you been crucified with Christ? Are you dead? That's your position. That those who live, doesn't say, oh, he says, those who live, they come to life by the gospel and the power of God's spirit should live unto him who died for them and rose again. So this is a salvation. Is it complete? Is it as complete as Noah? Did God put away sin? Did he put away all sin? 
Did he leave one behind? Did he miss one? He didn't see you do that? So, oh, I forgot about that one. Or did he bear the iniquity of us all? Did God lay on him the iniquity of us all? Did God judge him for the judgment that should have been mine and yours? Yes, he did. And it was a complete judgment. And we rest in a work God did in his Son. And that's the gospel that is preached. So I want to clarify, if I can, in the time that I have got, an issue that I currently face, both from television, Bible colleges, books, and that is this issue. What caused the flood? What caused the flood? One of the rules, in, they call it hermeneutics, meaning how you use the Bible to open out its meaning, just put simply like that. One of the rules, the basic rule, you must compare scripture with scripture to establish truth. You must put a scripture in its context, meaning you don't pull it out to give it sense, you put it where it is to give it sense. So what I'm going to do, I haven't got long left for the massive area we want to cover, Take your Bibles, turn to, and this will form the basis, Genesis 6, verse 1 to 4. It will be clear, I think, once you get to this, what I want to discuss from Scripture tonight. Genesis 6, verse 1 to 4. When men began to increase in number on the earth, and daughters were born to them. The sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful, and they married any of them they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit will not contend with man forever, for he's mortal, his days will be 120 years. The Nephilim, or the giants, were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God went to the daughters of men and had children by them, they were the heroes of old, men of renown. Let's pray and we're going to come to God's word. Father, we pray as we step into the history of our world, give us light from your word that will clarify the doubts we may have and lay a pathway of truth before us so we may be clear in what actually caused the flood. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. It is currently taught both on television and across much of the Christian community and also in Bible colleges and amongst my many friends <laughs> that these sons of God are fallen angels. So the way I teach my students is this. All right, let's accept it. That's what they teach. That's what we will look at. They teach their fallen angels. So I begin like this. How do you know sons of God are fallen angels? Because what does God call fallen angels? Unclean spirits, devils, demons. This is what he calls them. This is how unclean spirits, evil spirits, that's what they're addressed. They're addressed like that by Jesus in his day on the earth. So the issue is, <coughs> can I use the term sons of God to refer 
two fallen angels. Can I do that? Well, on the basis of the question, does God refer to fallen angels um, as sons of God? The argument, you go to the book of Job and it says the sons of God went into the presence of God and Satan went in with them. Does that mean these sons of God are fallen angels? No, it's accountability to the God of the throne. That's all that's taking place. It doesn't tell you they're fallen angels. In fact, they can't be. Because in the book of Job, I took you to Job 38.4 and it is the unfallen angels, the sons of God, who shouted for joy. They have not sinned. That's the word sons of God used in Job and they try to take out of Job that sons of God in chapter 1 and chapter 2 to make them fallen angels. Cannot be if you're going to be consistent with the book of Job. Can't be. So we begin to argue. Now you'll see the pathway I am following and then you'll begin to realise this is not some side issue. This is one of the most important principles in Scripture and its foundation is given here. Of bypass and misinterpret and we miss an immensely important message from God. So let's go through the thinking we see here. The first thing you will notice in your text in, in Genesis 6 as men began to multiply on the earth. What have you got? You have got a process that is happening over time. It's not instantaneous. It's something that happens. There is a progress of time and with that progress of time, something happened. As men began to multiply on the face of the earth, that's process of time, we're given an action. Sons of God saw the daughters of men. So what do you do? You take your context, your text, and you put it in its context. Meaning, I'm in Genesis 6. Go back to Genesis 4. I'll go quick, alright? I'll run out of time if I don't. You go back to Genesis 4. When you come to Genesis 4, you have a record of Cain. Cain rejected the true worship of God. He was given a second chance. He refused to take it because it would mean he would have to ask his brother for a sheep and he, he's, the pride of Satan is in him. You're not going to ask his brother. And God dealt with him. God him an offer of mercy, a second chance. And Cain rebelled. He hated his brother and he murdered him. Uh, why did he murder him? His own works were evil. That's the nature of his offering. His own brother's righteous. It's the offerings that are in view. We get that from the account by faith. Abel offered a more excellent sacrifice than Cain. So he kills his brother. He rejects the offer of God's mercy. He's driven from the ground, which he'd worked, and he built a city. I'm a farmer. I, I enjoy life on the farm. I don't enjoy life in the city. <laughs> You can live in the city if you like. It's just as hard probably to live as a Christian in the city as the farm. But by the way, in the farm, you learn you're not in control of your income. God is. <laughs> he can send a hailstorm. He can do a lot of things on a farm and you can lose a lot overnight. You've got to start again. That's the characteristic of farming. All right? So Cain goes out. He builds a city. Then we get a distinct record of the, what is called the line from Cain. You get Adam, you get Cain, you get another Enoch, third from Adam, and you go down, and you go down, it only goes seven generations, 
till you get to a man called Lamech. You'll have to check this out when you get home. Lamech is their seventh generation. So you've gone seven generations. This is a process over time. Men began to multiply on the face of the earth. You are down to the seventh generation. And you have a man, Lamech. Marriage breaks down. He has two wives, Ada and Zillah. You have IT, technology, because cattle husbandry doesn't mean they just raised cattle, it means they knew how to breed. You have them, every artificer in bronze and iron. Iron is just molten and, and poured in a mould and made. Bronze requires metallurgy. It requires the science of understanding that you have to melt metals together to get bronze. So it's an, it's an, uh, we, we would call it an IT generation. It's very much progressed in these areas. It's a, a, an area of music, two instruments, harp, flute, wind, strings, orchestra, music, they understood the lot. These are not cavemen. Cain built a city. These are not cavemen. These are brilliant. So music they understand, they compose, they do all that. This is the world. This is Cain's world and he's turned his back on the true worship of God which Abel has done. Seth has been born, but we won't go into that. What you've got here is seven generations ends in Lamech. Lamech means powerful, powerful for evil here. The other Lamech is powerful for good. He's powerful. So he has two wives, Ada and Zillah, and they have children. But you ask this question, how many women do you know before the flood? Their names. How many women do you know? Well, the first one we have no problems with, Eve. So she's named, and she's named prophetically by Adam because she will become the mother of all living before there's any living. So we have one we know, Eve we know. But then we come to this line that comes from Adam through Cain. We come to the seventh generation. We have Ada and Zillah, and the names have meaning. One is like um, a Hollywood star, it's outward beauty. The other one is a domineering and controlling wife, Ada and Zilla. That's the kind of person they were. That's the kind of, that's what their names mean. So you've got these two women named. But it's interesting. You have a sister of Tubal Cain, a sister. She is the daughter of Lamech. Her name is Neymar, which means beautiful. Did it register? You are in the seventh generation. You have one woman named. She's not married. The others are all married. Are we clear? Eve, Ada, and Zilla, they're married. This one is a sister of Tubal Cain, but her name means beautiful. She is in the seventh generation from Adam. Do you know who else lived in the seventh generation? That's why when you come to the book of Jude in your New Testament, it says, Jude the seventh from Adam. Sorry. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's not. It's Enoch. <laughs> Enoch the seventh from Adam prophesied. That is the, to, to, to separate him from the third from Adam, which is in the line of Cain, he is the seventh from Adam. But what's that tell you? 
he is living at the same kind of time as Lamech is living. Same generation, process of time. Do you know what Enoch saw? Enoch saw a son of God take Neymar for his wife. She was beautiful. Your Bible says they chose these women because of beauty. The basis was beauty, fair. So the first action that began this that only took three generations to bring God's judgment on this world was not a fallen angel going into a daughter of man and having a child or some kind of thing out of that because God built a law in each after its own kind and we happen to be mankind and he doesn't break his law. He can't do it. So what did he see? He saw one of these sons of God that worshipped God the way Abel did with an understanding I'm a sinner. My only approach to God is the way he has defined. And Cain has his own religion. He's turned his back on the understanding I'm a sinner. He just will not have that in and he's gone his own way. And one of the sons of God saw Naamah and took her to be his wife. That began three generations till when you're reading your King James, it says, God said to Noah, you only have I seen righteous before me in this generation, the tenth. It took the seventh to the tenth before the total corruption took place of mankind on the earth. Now let's, I've just gone very quickly, you can look at it for yourself. Let's start to take the text we're looking at and begin to see, well, is there a clear indication that these sons of God were not fallen angels? Now the first thing you do is this. Ask the question, who committed the sin? When you read Genesis 6, 1 to 4, who committed the sin? Read your Bible. Who committed the sin? Who do you think from your section, Genesis 6, 1 to 4, who committed the sin? Someone here? I've got an answer here, the sons of God. Anyone else? I'm asking, who committed the sin in your text? Who do you reckon? The sons of God, did they commit the sin? In your text, is that what it says? Is that what your text says? Huh? Now, don't interpret your text, I'm asking a question. In your text, from your text, who committed the sin? The sons of God, Saw the daughters of men. That's the action. It's the sons of God action that is identified as the sin, isn't it? The sons of God saw the daughters of men. The action was they took wives of all which they chose. So what I say is this. So, I interpret sons of God as fallen angels. So, if I accept that, I am saying 
fallen angels saw the daughters of men. They took wives of all which they chose. So fallen angels committed the sin. Who did God judge? He judged mankind. I will wipe man whom I have created from the face of the earth. They had become corrupt. Man had become corrupt. Do you see the difficulty? Immediately you start to impose something on, you are going to run into big problems because you're going to have to say, God is unjust. He should have judged fallen angels, not mankind, because fallen angels did the sin. Explain your statement. The fallen angels had corrupted the human race. So you're saying that the fallen angels who neither marry, angels do not marry, they are not given in marriage, they cannot reproduce and they have actually produced children by mankind. Well, you've gone against the law God built into creation which is consistent with every living thing in the visible world, each after its own kind. Mankind only reproduces mankind. What's that? He saw the wickedness of man. They had, corrupt, they had corrupted his way upon the earth. It was the man's heart was evil continually. The whole charge is against mankind. The whole charge. So I want to ask you, because this is not the finish, we must go through systematically to argue every argument that's brought against the fact that I am saying it's not fallen angels, it is an action that mankind did. And they saw the daughters of men, the sons of God, the line, because we have put it in its context. Genesis 4 came through to Lamech. Genesis 5, Adam through Seth down to Enoch. Seventh generation. Why did it stop there? Why did the line of Cain stop there? because it's the seventh generation that Enoch saw and Neymar means beautiful. He saw from his line, he's godly, he saw a, a personage from Tate Neymar, process of time, seven generations. He saw one of the godly line, Tate Neymar, and he predicted and he said, your name is Lamech, uh, your name is Methuselah. When you die, that's the finish and if you want to add your ages together, Methuselah died the year of the flood. Was Enoch a prophet? Accurate. So we, we come to this place, and I'm saying this, that what happened was someone from the godly line who worshipped according to the way Abel worshipped now united himself in marriage with someone from the ungodly line. And what have you got here? I'll tell you, you have got mixtures, not of an angel with a personage. 
you have mixed the godly line with the ungodly. This is laying a foundation for the whole of the rest of Scripture, whether you're dealing with Old Testament or New Testament. This mixture God condemns and finds abhorrent right through the rest of your Bible, whether he's dealing with Israel or whether he's dealing with the church. Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. He takes verse after verse after verse, question after question after question. You cannot do it because if you do, you will run into problems. That's what he's saying. And it's history, real history today. Make a wrong choice and you're going to have more difficulties than you would in an ordinary marriage if you married a believer. Or you you should. I'll, I'll just put, you should have less difficulties if you marry a believer. You marry an unbeliever. You say, oh, they'll come to church, they'll get converted. What does the word of God teach? Do not be unequally yoked together with an unbeliever. So what do you ask? This is pastors, all right? What do you ask? Because I have it. They come to you and they're going to be married. Someone comes to you from your youth group. Going to be married. What's your first question? You're a believer. Are they a believer? No, they're not a believer, but they come to church and they will change over time. You've heard it? Argument after argument. All the reasons given. Do we condemn someone who's done this? No, we don't. But what we're saying is, unless you use the values to teach your young people how they choose someone they're going to live with for the rest of their life and don't base it on the value of Scripture, you're placing before them a problem pathway. Worse than if they marry another believer. You will have problems in every marriage. It's reality. (laughs) In case you don't know, it's reality. You begin to learn after you've been married for a while that you're going to have to live through difficulties in your marriage. But if you marry an unbeliever, you have got real problems. And God is protecting. It's wise counsel to protect against this kind of choice. Hollywood, beautiful, flesh, attractive. That's what it says. And if every advertisement on your media, your signboards, does not have a woman half clad in the advertisement, you're not understanding the appeal of the flesh. You choose solely on beauty, outward, and it's wrong. Isn't it? What is choice? Now, I, I, I was asked before I left Vanuatu two years ago, because we had had a creation, all full Saturday, I was teaching on creation. The last PowerPoint I put up on the screen was in English, and it was English illustration, but it said, this man, Tom, went to his father and said, can I marry Bob? It's the last PowerPoint for the day I put up, because it's the, it's the reality of Romans chapter 1, believe the useless woman and burning the last one towards another, so I'd put it up showing that Romans 1 teaches this is the final outcome. Monday morning, the daily newspaper had headlines. On Ephira Island, two male couples 
they weren't Nevans, they were Europeans, were married. It hit the headlines of the daily paper in Vila Monday morning after this had gone up Saturday on the screens. And there was a revolt of letters into the editor because they have very high values. Culturally, they have very high values. You don't dig in till you dig in, you begin to understand they have, there are values we don't have because there are certain cultural things. So they have very high values. I was asked, because I was flying out the next weekend, asked to speak to the chef of province. Just asked to address the churches, all the churches. So I thought, I cannot leave unless I address the issue that's facing the nation. So what I did was this. It's in a big open building with no windows, so everyone's sitting outside and everyone's inside. I have the whole of the executive behind me, like this. So I took them through and I expounded the love of God as it's given in Scripture, the nature of God's love, how he went to the cross, why he did it, what he accomplished, all that. This is the love of God and how salvation takes place. Then I asked, what is the basis of marriage? And I watched the lips. And I watched them. Love. Like you can see it, you know, when someone says something, they, they say it with their lips. Love. I said, all right, take your Bibles, turn to 1, 1 Kings chapter 11 and return to Solomon. And Solomon married first Pharaoh's daughter, then he married daughters of the Ammonites, Moabites, Hittites, all these, he clave to them in love. That's what the Bible says. But I said, what was God's attitude to that kind of marriage? Because he said, these women, as he got old, drew away his worship of God unto their idols. This isn't a man marrying a man. This is marriage of a man with a woman. So what is the basis of marriage? It's not love. That is part of marriage, yes, but it's not the basis. What is the basis? Ah, you could see lights start to come on. The word of God is my value system, not my emotions. And do you know one of the executives came up behind me when I'd finished? and said to me, I read the paper, these men love each other, what is the matter with the marriage? Do you see the difference? Brainwashed by a Western society to accept what we accept, but it's against their cultural values. But unless the basis is God's word, you will choose wrong and you will do wrong. I'm not saying God cannot remedy it. He's very gracious and he does in many instances. I had a man, when I first went to university, <coughs> I had a man taking Hebrews as I would go to the Christian group. And one day he said to us as a group, he said, you know, God has been very gracious to me. I was a Catholic and my wife should never have married me. But he said, God had mercy and he saved me. But he said, my wife did wrong. She should not have married me biblically. But God had mercy on me and saved me. I thought, wow, what a statement from someone who'd been through the mill like that and saw the mercy of God. 
Does it mean I can do it and get away with it? You can do it, but you may not get away with it. You cannot predict the outcome. Your safest pathway is in the light of God's word we make our decisions. That's it. That, your word, it is a lamp to my path, it is a light to my feet. We make our decisions, not on our emotions, but in the light of God's word. So when we come to this that happened here, they will say, oh, it must be fallen angels because the sons of God went into the daughters of men, had children by them, and it says, <coughs> the Nephilim were on the earth in those days. So the angels were caused, the um, giants were caused by the fallen angels going into the daughters of men. That is not what the verse is saying. The verse is saying this, there were giants in the earth in those days, period. And also afterwards, when the sons of God went into the daughters of men. So giants were not caused by the sons of God going into the daughters of men. There were giants, period. And I've been told there were no giants Nephilim after the flood. Now you can't do that. Numbers 13, 33 says the Nephilim were on the earth when Israel went into the land. Giants, they're giants. The words used are Nephilim, Gibor, or Rapha, meaning giant. It's used interchangeably in Deuteronomy. So you, you come to the fact these uh, Nephilim going into the daughters of men they had children, the, the sons of God going in, the daughters of men had children. What is your verse saying? Look at your verse. I guess it's on the board. Yeah. Please notice. Your verse is not directing you to the understanding. Giants were caused by the sons of God going into the daughters of men. Your verse is saying when the sons of God went to the daughters of men, which was the action that caused the flood. And children were born to them, that union, these became heroes or men of renown. What's that mean? It means the worship of God has now descended to the level where man is worshipped. What world are you living in? The icon of gospel music. You know what icon means? An object of worship. That's what icon means. You go into the rooms of some of these young people, you'll see their icon picture on the wall. They're wholly occupied with it. I know that one, we had an Easter convention up in Queensland and I heard the comment, I was told the comment, if this personage, I won't name them, if this personage is not there, I'm not going one of the entertainers, one of these gospel icons. Meaning, they're my, they're my hero. Why is it today we see nothing wrong with the king of football? We had the king of swimming, Thorpe. We have the king of football. We have the king of cricket. Are they heroes? That's how they're treated. They're heroes. Objects of men of renown. They're raised up for objects of worship. When the Garden of Eden is still there, right up to the flood, God is to the object of worship. 
There's a flaming sword at the entrance. There are cherubim. The whole testimony, this is the place where God is. And by the way, it's where the ark was built, outside there. The whole object has shifted from the worship of God to man, and we call it humanism today. That's what it is. You go in and you do psychology, you do sociology in your higher education. You're going to face the, the philosophy of humanism, how great man is. Not how depraved and rotten and wretched he is and in so great a need of salvation because he's come from Adam and he's a sinner by nature. And you're going to face the same thing in the church. Someone's mentioned, and I've heard it before, they do not like John Newton's hymn. He saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. That is John Newton's state. You read it. The wreckage of his life, and God took him out of it by grace. So what have we got? Are there hero worship today? You've got it everywhere. You've only got to look on your billboards. You go to Fiji. used to be Serebi. I loved Serebi. Serebi was the sevens man. He used to be the back line and he could direct the whole thing. He was a master. Serebi was a Christian. And Serebi trained some other nations in how to play sevens football. But you go now and you'll see these men, there may be seven of them, they're all put up there and they're the ones looked up to and all this kind of thing. You have the same thing wherever you turn in every sport all over the world, there are these heroes. I want to be like them, isn't it? Paul said, mark them which walk so as you have us for an example. Many walk, I tell you, weeping. They are the enemies of the cross of Christ. They serve the flesh. They serve themselves. They're not serving God. So there is a great call here. So you have heroes. That's the whole drive. Here is the world. It happened in the seventh generation and it took the seventh, the eighth and the ninth. By the time you got to the tenth, the whole value system of marriage had been shattered. Tell me what kind of world are you and I living in today if the value values of marriage has not been shattered? It's the kind of world we're living in. You go from this point in your Bible, whether you do Abraham, whether you do Isaac, do not get a wife for my son out of these Canaanites. When God sent Israel into the land, he said in Exodus 34, you must not form a treaty with this people. You must not marry their daughters. Exodus 34, these are words. You must not marry their daughters. They will lead you off into idol worship and you'll prostitute yourselves against God and you will serve the gods of the land. That's God's warning. And you go right through the history. I took you through Solomon. What happened to Solomon? And God drove them because they did what the nations did before them. It's an interesting thing. I like to do this. 
Now nine o'clock, I've got to finish. I like to do this. I want you to think. Laodicea, the last church mentioned in the seven. You are neither hot nor cold. You are lukewarm. I am going to... Now the NIV has, I will spit you. No, you can't use that. The word is spew, vomit. I will vomit you out of my mouth. You know where that is in your New Testament, Old Testament? Twice. Back in Leviticus 18 and Leviticus 20, you have this. If, and he goes through the lists of what is done in the land when Israel went in. There is all kinds of sin. Homosexuality, incest, all kinds of sins are listed. That's what they did. When God sent Israel in, that was their lifestyle. And God told them, you do this, listen to the words, I will vomit you out of the land. So if God says that to Israel, his chosen nation, perhaps our generation will hear the same words. I will vomit you out. Because that's what he said to Laodicea. And what we are seeing in the churches is a compromised situation where we are compromising our whole value system and allowing the world to influence us, aren't we? That's what's happening. So you have, have pastors now will marry and finally marry and probably legally will be forced to because it's passed by government. They will have to marry whoever comes to them. If you're going to have a marriage, um, you know, certificates of commit marriage, we are living in a rapid collapse, a rapid collapse of what is happening. So when you go through the nation of Israel, you realise God sent the Babylonian army in finally to judge them and Habakkuk could not understand how can you use an ungodly, ruthless people to judge people more righteous than them? And Habakkuk had real questions in his book. But God sent the Babylonians in to judge because of the wickedness. They go back. A remnant went back to the land of Israel when they, Cyrus gave his decree. It's only about 46,000 went back. Of all that went out, only those. They go back into the land and then they start to build. They go to build the temple. That was their work. As they're doing it, Ezra is told, some of the our people have married into the nations round about. He sat on the ground, he tore his hair out, he ripped his clothes, and he said, I blush to lift up my head. The holy seed have mingled themselves with the nations around. If that isn't Genesis 6, 1-4, what is? Nehemiah had the same words. You read Nehemiah chapters 12 and 13. You're just seeing expressed exactly what you read in Genesis 6, 1 to 4. The holy seed, that's what he called them, have mingled themselves in marriage with these nations around. And he had to deal with the situation. Very hard. So is mixtures a problem with God? Yes, it is. A mixture that involves mixing godly with ungodly, whether it's business, because that'll bring you problems. You mix with the ungodly in business, your values are totally different. 
And sooner or later, you're going to run into problems, unless your, your partner gets the one with you and business gets converted. It will create real problems in business. It's just a principle. You can't mix godly with ungodly. I'm a farmer. Now, I, I use, uh, well, we, we use John Deere mostly, John Deere tractors. <coughs> All right, but say I'm not there. Say I'm, I'm, I'm back in the days where you have to plough. We used to have a plough when I was young on a horse and we used to follow the horse. The Bible teaches you, he says, you must not plough with a donkey and an ox yoked together. Why? Because the ox has horns. The donkey has hooves. You get there and you're going to plough a straight line and when you, when you plough you uh, aim for an object, make one that doesn't move, it's fixed. And you go towards that object and you're aiming. What happens? The ox has got horns. The donkey's necked up. Boom. So what's the donkey do? Bang! With a hoof. And you're trying to plough, you will never plough a straight line if you're unequally yoked. It's just taking the shadow of the Old Testament and making it reality in the New. That's all I'm doing. Your whole Old Testament is full of shadow and reality in your New. So what I've told you, now five past, <laughs> what I've told you is this. Now you see why my concern is so great? If I say they're fallen spirits, I have many arguments why they can't be. But what I am saying is you've missed an important message. And I think today we have failed to communicate the values of marriage to our young people. It's a lifelong choice and it's done in the light of God's word. If we do not teach them, they can't have these values. It is a requirement that we teach the values of God to our young people, isn't it? All right? Now, five past nine. I trust it has been helpful to you, even if you've totally disagreed with me. I trust it's been helpful to you to, to set you thinking on some of what we have covered from Scripture tonight. Thank you.